Man, how, how was that for our first time having our own music team? I'm excited too because we're starting a new sermon series today. And, uh, and I love when we get into a new sermon series because there's so many possibilities of what God's going to teach us and what we're going to learn uh, through his word. And I'm, I'm just really excited. Uh, we're looking at the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph falls at the very end of the book of Genesis, chapters 37 through 50, which is 13 or 14 chapters. My math's not good. We're going to do that in six weeks. So we're going to, we're going to kind of fly through the story of Joseph, and specifically we're going to look at um, the theme of life's pain and God's purposes, because you know that Joseph, you know that story, you know that Joseph went through some stuff. And, uh, and when you go through some stuff, there's a tendency to lose perspective and think that the pain is pointless, which is a little bit what we talked about last week from Romans 8. But we're really going to dig into this series, and my hope as, as we go through this series is a couple things. One, that you'll think about your own story, and you'll think about the, the things that you have been through. And what tends to happen when we go through things is we either don't deal with them or we don't know how to deal with them. And what happens in the story of Joseph is he has to learn how to deal with the things that he goes through. At the very end of the story, it's amazing. He's not bitter. You know how pain hollows people out? You just keep going through pain and after a while you just feel hollow. Joseph goes through some stuff and at the end of the story, he's not hollowed out by the pain. He's not bitter. He's actually full of forgiveness. He's full of faith in God. And I think that as we look at our own stories and the things that we have been through, there's something that we can learn from Joseph on how to walk through our stuff and deal with it in a healthy way. And part of that, too, is that God has a purpose. Part of what I think Joseph actually actually helps him walk through his stuff is that he knows God's present, even though he doesn't always see God. He doesn't always, it doesn't always go well. And that's difficult. But there's something about Joseph where he sees God working behind the scenes. And that helps him process through his story. So let's, uh, let's dive right in. I'm... All right, guys, forgive me. I might butcher this a little bit, but we'll, we'll get through it. All right, Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's surgeries, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are biting sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheep arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheep gathered around it and bowed down to my sheep. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? 
or are you indeed too onerous? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock of Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to them, Go now. See if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent to him from the valley of Hebron, and he said to Shechem, A man found him wandering in the fields. And the men asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dufin. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dufin. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a fierce animal had devoured him, and he will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of the hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the mm -hmm. robe of many colors, that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, palm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brother, What profit is it? If we kill our brother and conceal his blood, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Mennonite travel, uh, traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes, 30, and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. What they And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether this is your son's robe or not. 
and he identified it. It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth in his lions mourned and mourned for his sons many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refuses to be comforted and said, No, I shall go to Sheol to my son's mourning. Thus this father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Amen. The word of God. The word of God. Thank you, Cherish. As we read the word of God, uh, it's going to stretch us. And I'll talk a little bit about why it's okay to, to read longer sections of scripture and how that actually changes us in a different way than just reading a, a little verse one at a time. Um, but before we get into this sermon, let me just pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. We want to sit under it now and we want to ask that your spirit would teach us. We want to ask that you would change me, that you would change us, and that you would use us for your purposes. And all God's people said, Amen. I want to tell you a quick story about a movie. There's a movie that I really like that came out about 2006, and it's this movie called Stranger in Fiction. And it stars Will Ferrell as this guy named Harold Crick, who's an IRS auditor. And like you would expect an IRS auditor, he is in control of every part of his life. He has got his systems down. He brushes each tooth a certain amount of times, and his routine is exactly the way he wants it. He's kind of a control freak when it comes to his own life. But as the story progresses, he begins to hear this narration in his head. It's someone almost narrating what he's doing as he does it in a more articulate way than he would. So he brushes his teeth and, and he hears his voice that says, Harold woke up that morning tired, but he went to the bathroom to brush his teeth. And he begins to hear this voice in his head, and he thinks he's going crazy. But what he begins to realize is that he's actually in a story himself. He's, in this weird way, someone is writing a story about him, and all of a sudden he finds out that he's not in control of what happens in his own story. And this question starts to haunt him. If someone else is writing my story, is this story that they're writing tragedy. Am I in a story I can't control that's a tragedy? Or is it another kind of story? And I think that's a powerful question. Is my story a tragedy? Because I think on some level we all wrestle with that when things happen to us. We wonder, are our stories tragedies? Is my story a tragedy? And if you were to talk about this with people, it really catches on. Because there's a lot of books that have to do with how you see your own story. So there's a book called The Power of Positive Thinking or something like that. And, and basically the idea is, you know, you, can, you might have bad things that, you, that happen to you, but as you change your thought pattern, you can change the way that you act when those bad things happen. Or even the serenity prayer. God, help me to change the things I can and accept the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. That, it has to do with things happening in your life that you don't want to happen, things that, you're out of that are out of your control, and things that are tragedy. Uh, in Joseph's story, 
one of the big questions as Joseph walks through this is this is this story of Joseph is it a tragedy or is it something else Joseph finds himself uh, in a messed up family his family background is really messed up he's 17 years old he's a he's a shepherd and he's the favorite son of his father now his, his father has 11 other sons and the text tells us that Joseph is from one of the wives that the father actually married. The other brothers are from women that the father has not married, from concubines. So already we're getting a little bit of a scenario that Joseph is in a little bit of a broken situation with his family. He's in a messed up family. And his father sends him, his favorite son, to go find his brothers. Joseph has been given this coat of many colors showing that, the, that Joseph is the favorite son. But as he goes to find his brothers, his brothers do something messed up to him. And really, it should be no surprise to us, because if you back out of the story and you go back a couple chapters, you'll see that these, this family is actually very violent. It's a very violent family. Read through chapter 34 of Genesis. And these brothers, it's not just like a rumbly tumbly house full of boys. These guys are killers. And if you mess with them, they'll kill you. Not only that, but Joseph's family has a long history of deception. In fact, his father's name is Jacob, which means deceiver. Joseph finds himself in a messed up family, in a messed up situation. He's about to have some messed up things done to him. His brothers see him coming, and they say, this is our chance. This is our opportunity to get that dream that dream. You see, Joseph had had some dreams that maybe were not the right thing to share with his brothers. I mean, we get the sense that Joseph is a little immature because his dreams had to do with him basically being worshipped by his family. That's not the kind of thing you really want to share with everyone else because you're going to make some people angry. And he does make them angry. And Joseph's brothers hate him for his dreams, and they hate him because his father loves him more than anybody else. And so when they see him coming, they say, here comes that dreamer, now's our chance. And these violent men make a plan to kill Joseph. Now they wrestle and go back and forth, should we kill him, should we leave him, should we sell him? And what they ultimately do is they sell him. They've kidnapped him, and now they're moving into the zone of human trafficking. And they sell him to Ishmaelites. And now that's interesting because it takes us even more into the brokenness of his family because Ishmaelites were part of the family. Remember, Abraham had Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. So Abraham is Joseph's great-grandfather. But Abraham also had Ishmael. And Ishmael's clan grew and grew and grew. And so in one sense, this band of traders, that are not traitors, but traders, people who trade, that are coming, they're relatives, they're fam. And his brothers sell Joseph into captivity with these distant cousins. This is a broken family, this is a broken situation, and Joseph has broken things happening to him. And I think the first thing that this really helps us do is acknowledge the only thing, the, the, the things that have happened in our own life that are tragic. I mean, you can picture Joseph sitting there in the pit 
not knowing what's happening, what not knowing what's going to happen next, maybe even hearing the talk from his brothers. And wrestling with, man, is my story a tragedy? What in your story would make you think that your story is a tragedy? Have you ever wrestled with that? Have you ever wrestled with the pain in your life that you've experienced? And then what that means for your story? You know, many of us don't even go there. We don't go there because it's just too painful to go back to the pain. But I think the first thing we really learn from the story of Joseph is to actually acknowledge what has happened in our story. Here's the wonderful thing about the Bible. It's incredibly honest about pain. It's incredibly honest about brokenness. It's incredibly honest about messed up things that happen. And I think that should give us a freedom to explore the things that have happened to us. Have you ever reflected on the messed up things in your life? The messed up things that have been done to you. The messed up things that have been done by you to someone else. Or the messed up things that have been done around you. We're given a freedom here to begin to explore what has happened in Because God uses those things in Joseph's life actually for a greater purpose. You see, Joseph has been appointed by God for a particular time to be in a particular place and have a particular responsibility. And he uses all those messed up things in Joseph's life to get him there. Now, the amazing thing about the chapter that we're in right now is that Joseph's, or Joseph is mentioned but God is not mentioned. You won't find God once in this chapter. And I think here's why that's helpful. Because as bad things happen to us, as messed up things happen to us, we often feel like God isn't there. As we reflect back on our stories and we have seasons of tragedy and seasons of pain, we begin to think that we're in some sort of twisted tragedy because we go, where is God? And in this story with Joseph, we're just beginning to understand the tragic events in his life, and there's no mention of God. And yet what we know from later in the story is that God actually has a deep, deep purpose for Joseph. And even though God is absent in wording from this chapter, he's present in this story. The bad things that are happening to Joseph actually have a greater purpose. God's going to use Joseph, and God's going to use Joseph's messed up family for a, something that they could never imagine. God has taken a messed up family that does messed up stuff, and he's going to use it for his purposes. And as you think about your own story, and if you think about the own th your own things in your life that are messed up, maybe you're in a place where you're mad at God because you feel like he's messed up. Anybody ever been there? We can be honest. Come on. Okay. Maybe you feel like it's God who has messed up. The story of Joseph tells us that God doesn't mess up. We go through incredibly difficult things, even things that make us feel like our entire life is just a tragedy. And what the story tells us, there are no tragedies. 
There are tragic things that happen, but there is a God who always has a purpose. God doesn't mess up. In fact, we're really the ones who mess up. We're the ones who have made a mess. And as you think about this life, what in this life is not messed up? You, know, you got married thinking, man, this is really going to work. This is going to change me. I'm going to change my spouse. It's going to be perfect. And then you got to the middle of the marriage, and you love your spouse. But guess what? You found out marriage is messed up. All right? You, you, uh, you got a job, and you thought it was going to fulfill all your dreams, and you get in the middle of the job, and it's hard. It's not what you thought. You found out your job was messed up. We, we elected people into power, and now we're heading toward this election season. And the elections, it's a mess. What did we choose? And I think we can see it most clearly in the racial issues in our country now. It's messed up. It's messed up. But when we begin to understand that there's something behind the scenes that we might not see or we might not understand, that God actually has purpose for every messed up thing that happens we begin to have a different perspective. And instead of just looking at the tragedy, we ask ourselves, what is God doing and how can I take part in it? You know, one of the most amazing things that I've seen happen uh, around the country in the last five years, as we've seen tension between um, racial stuff, between police stuff, one of the most amazing things is I've seen black and white folks come together and stand for both peace and justice, even though they don't totally agree with that. Do you see that they're realizing that there's a bigger purpose than just them? And what that says that, hey, we don't totally agree with each other. What is even happening here? But we're in this together. There's a purpose. And God is showing his purpose through that. I'm even amazed yesterday, a friend of mine who's a pastor up in Virginia, he's, he's an African-American. And he said, look, there's a purpose for all this that's happening. And so I'm going to go serve the police in my neighborhood. And he went, and as an African-American man, he went and invested in the local police force in his neighborhood. I thought, that's a man that gets it. There's, there's something that God is doing, and it's not really clear, and it's a mess. It's a messed up situation. But he says, I, I'm going to see a purpose bigger than myself. That idea of purpose can really drive us and give us hope in the midst of tragedy. But we have to clearly define what that means. Because purpose is a hot word, it's a buzz topic in our culture. And purpose is for individuals, but it's not individualistic. Your purpose is for you, but it's greater than you. It's calling you into something bigger. In other words, God has a purpose for you, but God's purpose necessarily isn't about you. What we tend to do when we read the Bible and when we read a story like this, we look at Joseph and we say, listen, Joseph has dreams, and I have dreams. Joseph has haters, and I have haters. And Joseph's dreams came true through God's purposes, so my dreams must be. And that's not what this story is about. We're not the hero 
of the story. We've got to be careful how we read the story if we truly want to understand the term purpose. Because what ends up happening in our culture is we get so many messages about me, me. It's your story. Everyone else is in your story. That we begin to think that God is in our story rather than understanding that we're in God's story. You have a story, but your story is in God's story and not the other way around. It's almost as if God is the narrator and we say, no, I want to narrate the story, God. I'm going to tell you the plan that I have. And we're so confused because this is the air we breathe in this culture. So if I tell you, listen, someone has a dream to do something great. No one believes in him. And against all odds, he rises to the challenge and he does something great. I could share that and some people would go, amen. You see, that's not Joseph's story. That's Rocky Balboa. That's Rocky Balboa. That's the boxer from the movies, Rocky Balboa. And what we often do is we, we, we take in the culture so much that we can't decipher between a biblical story and what we hear all the time in the culture. Listen, here's another one. A person is kind of a loner, and through a miracle, they have something imparted to them, and only them. And this thing that's imparted to them changes them, it changes the way they live their life, so they now have abilities that no one else has. And then they rise up and use their new power for great good. Spider-Man. You were close. That's Spider-Man. But when we hear that, we go, well, that, that must be what's happening in the Bible and in this story. And then we read the Bible, we read that, and we go, if that's what's happening to Joseph, that must be what's happening to me. And it's not the truth. It's not the truth. That's a very individualistic understanding of purpose. There's, there's an idea in our culture called moral therapeutic deism, and it's the religion of our culture. Moral therapeutic deism. Moral means God wants me to be a good, nice person and just try to do the best I can. Therapeutic means God will then bless me in the ways that I see fit. He'll give me health and wealth and prosperity as I understand it. And then deism means that God sort of sets things in motion but then steps away. and He's not really involved in the day-to-day aspect of our life. Moral, therapeutic, Deism is the religion of our culture, but it's not the religion of the Bible. And as we read the story of Joseph, we have to understand that the point of the story is not that Joseph had dreams and that he had haters, but God made his dreams come true, and so Joseph is the hero. And therefore, we must be the hero. The purpose is much bigger than that. This kind of teaching, though, you don't have to go far. And it is prevalent on the TV when you turn it on and listen to other preachers. Because it sells, baby. It sells. People want to hear that God's going to make their life the best possible. In fact, a pastor I respect put a quote out on Facebook. And I really liked what he said. Uh, pastor Eric Mason's the founding pastor of a church plant in Philadelphia called Epiphany Fellowship. And I'll read it and I'll explain what he means. He says, believers are being left vulnerable to wolf ideologies, preaching on individualistic purpose and personal destiny must not be the central priority. 
What he's saying right now is that there are people that are teaching things that aren't for the sheep of God. There are wolves coming in with teachings that are not from the Bible, but they sound like they're from the Bible. And one of the main things is that these preachers will focus on individualistic purpose and personal destiny, and they'll read that in every story. We must meet needs in preaching, but we have to use the pulpit as a preparation station. Doctrine or true teaching about God and His Son Jesus must be present and prominent. We must give up some cheap amen moments to help the flock. What Pastor Mason is saying is that we can't sit up here and if I were to, well, if I were to tell you, listen, you have dreams and you have haters, but God is about Joseph's dreams, so God's going to be about your dreams. You all would go, amen. That's not what the story is about. That's not what the story is about. And we have to think bigger and broader from these stories if we're going to be prepared to face life as it really comes at us. As it really comes at us. Because the reality that in the Bible, the Bible teaches, you ready for this? That God is the hero and we are the haters. The Bible teaches that God is the hero, and we are the haters. The Bible tells the tragic tale of how God created man in his own image. God didn't need relationship with humanity, but because of his great love, he created man. In three chapters into the Bible, man rebels against God. And that's called sin. And you and I inherit that sin pattern from our first parents but we also willfully participate in it. And because humanity rebelled against God, God wrote them out of the story. Adam and Eve were told to leave the Garden of Eden and never to come back. They were separated from God. God separated himself from them because he is the author. And they actually were the ones who tried to write their own story. When, when Adam and Eve were told by the serpent, if you eat this apple, you'll have the knowledge of good and evil. What he was tempting them to do is to become the authors of their own story. And when they engaged in that, they separated themselves from God and God banished them from the garden. And they were faced with separation from God, separation from his story of life, and, and separation eternally. If they died apart from being That is the tragic tale of humanity. And when we're the hero of the story, that's what happens. But that's not the end of the story. God doesn't let the story end in a tragedy. God turns the story of humanity into a story of redemption. In his great love for us, God the Father sends God the Son to enter into the, the story of humanity. He's fully God, but he becomes a man and never rebels against his father. Does everything that, that God requires of him. And then goes to the cross on our behalf. He's put on the cross, he's punished in our place, he's put in the grave, but on the third day he rose again. And when he's put on the cross, that is Jesus being written out of God's story so that you and I can be written out. Jesus was rejected, we are accepted. And then we get weaved back into the story of God. In God's story, 
Jesus is always here. And the whole point of the Bible is that we are the haters, and Jesus is the hero who turns a tragedy into a story of redemption. And so we have to understand that as we look at Joseph's story. And I want to push hard in this area because this type of teaching is so prevalent in our culture. We have to, we have to, we have to discern and nuance it. Because even in Joseph's story, 37, chapter 38, chapter 39, chapter 40, he, his life gets worse and worse and worse. If you know, he's wrongly accused of something a couple chapters later. He ends up in prison. He has the hope of getting out of prison, but then he's forgotten in prison. And his life gets worse. But then in chapter 41, his life gets a lot better. He becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. He rises to power in the country. And, and, and if we look at this through this lens, we go, oh, there it is, there it is. See, God made his dreams come true. But the reality is Joseph rises to power, but he's still enslaved. Joseph lives his life, saves his family, is obedient to his father, takes care of his brother's children, but his brother Judah is chosen to be the recipient of God's blessing. And Joseph, we think he's living large in Egypt, but the reality is his heart is set on the promised land of Canaan. And when he's taken away by these Israelite traders, he's never again to see his homeland that God has promised him. What does all that mean? This is not a story where the hero returns home victorious. Body Bachi says this is a tale of redemption. It's not a tragedy. It is a tale of redemption. Joseph pays an unthinkable price for a purpose much greater than he. In other words, at the end of the story, it's not like everything has worked out. Joseph doesn't get maybe even what he deserves. He's been the best son of Jacob. He's been the most faithful, the most loyal. And yet Judah is awful. Read chapter 38. Judah's awful. But Judah gets chosen as the one to carry God's blessing. The point of that is that we cannot look at this story and again think that Joseph is the hero. Man, the accounts are going to be settled. Everything that bad happened to him, it's all going to work out and make sense in the end. It doesn't make sense. It's probably not even fair. It's probably not even fair. And yet at the end of the story, here's what's amazing. Joseph is not full of bitterness. He's not full of this should have happened and that should have happened. He's not been hollowed out by the pain. He's not sitting there going, man, these guys owe me. Instead, he is full of forgiveness. He's full of forgiveness for his brothers and the way that they've treated them. He's full of love for their children. He promises to take care of his brother's children. And he could have wiped out their entire family. He has an incredible perspective where he sees all the bad things that have happened to him through the lens of God's purpose. He's not angry at God. In fact, his last dying words are, God has promised us the land of Canaan. I'm obviously going to die in Egypt, but carry my bones back to Canaan. On his deathbed, full of faith of what God has promised, not angry at God, but his last act is, a lack, is an act of loyalty, saying, I trust God, just get my bones there. 
get my bones to the promised land. How does Joseph end up so full of forgiveness and full of love and full of perspective and full of faith when the story doesn't actually turn out like we would want it to and like we would write it in the movies? I think the secret's this. He owns his story, but he realizes that his story is just a smaller story than a story of God. His story is just a smaller story than the story of God. One of the things that we'll see over and over in this story is God's promise and God's providence. God's promise and God's providence. In chapter 37, God is not mentioned at all except in verse 1, we're told that this is really a story about Jacob's The author mentions Jacob. And if you think about Jacob, then you go back, you go back to Isaac. If you go back to Isaac, you go back to Abraham. And as you say all those people's names, it's not just a messed up family. It's a messed up family that God has made promises to. God has made promises to you them to bless the world and to give them many descendants and to use their family to bring about redemption in ways that they could never imagine. He's, he said he will make them a people and he will give them a land and, and they will be the, the promised line that brings forth the Messiah. And so Joseph knows that God is writing a story according to his promises. Joseph knows that God is writing a story according to his promises and that God will be faithful to those promises. And even in the midst of deep tragedy, Joseph has Because he knows God keeps his promises. And listen, if God keeps his promises, it means that whatever happens in your story, your story is not a tragedy. Your story is not a tragedy. So what do you do? If you feel like your story is a tragedy, well, I'm encouraging you to do what Joseph does. Know the promises of God. Know the story of God. Get to see what God is doing on a big picture level and begin to take your story and put it in that story. This has been one of the most life-changing things for me in my own walk with Jesus. Because at one point in my life, I knew all the little stories. I knew about Joseph's story. I could tell it to you. But I didn't know where it fit in God's story. I knew all the Bible characters, but I didn't understand the point. I didn't understand what God was doing on a big picture level. And I want to encourage you and challenge you to think about getting to know God's story. So I actually want to give you a couple of resources. These are some books that really help with understanding God's Story. And I put them in order. Top left is the easiest to read. Bottom right is probably the most challenging. The first two books are children's Bibles. What we use here at this church is called the Jesus Storybook Bible, and that teaches you how to see Jesus in every story. The next story is called the biggest story. It's God's story. And it teaches you how to read scripture as one continuous story. Now, I love these. We read these to our kids, and it's actually really helpful for me. A couple other resources. One is how to read the Bible book by book. Rather than um, just focusing on individual verses, it takes you back and you can see the entire book of Genesis and what the author is trying to communicate about God. 
and then how, there's another one called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, and then a couple more complicated ones, but very helpful as far as the curses found, uh, the covenant story of redemption, and then lastly, the Christ of the covenants. Let me encourage you if, you, if you know the stories, but you don't know how the stories link together, grab one of these. Don't be afraid to start out with the, the children's ones, because I love those too, and they have pictures. But these, these will help you get a big picture of who God is and the story that he is writing throughout all the time. And as you read that, you begin to place your story within God's story. Because God will take your very broken story, and he's going to weave that into his story. He takes Joseph's broken family, and by the end of the story, of Joseph's story, they're transformed. They're very different. The characters who shirked responsibility are now taking responsibility. It's very incredible what God does. God takes this broken family and uses this tragedy that's happened to Joseph to, to really save the world from famine. And that's because he's, he's weaving his story of his promises. But then also providence, and we get at the very end of the story just a, a little glimmer in this term called providence, which means God's in control of all things. Again, God's not mentioned in this in this chapter, but in verse 40, 36, the last verse of this chapter, it says, Meanwhile, the Midianites, that's the Ishmaelites, had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the no mention of God in that, but what we're meant to see is that God is in control. God is in control of all the things that have happened to Joseph, and he's putting Joseph in the next stage of where he wants him so that God can capture, so that God can write a story of redemption. Let me encourage you as we go through the Joseph story that God is not absent in your life. God is weaving your story into his story. God is bringing his promises to expression. And so if tragedy strikes, know this, your story is not a tragedy. Your story is a story of redemption and salvation. Because those are the kinds of stories that God has. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your presence with us this morning. Lord, we know you're here with us because you've said that you're here with us. And so we pray that even um, as we wrestle with the, the things that have happened in our own lives, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to bring those broken pieces into your story. That you would give us wisdom and courage. That you do, in fact, love us, and you do, if you've redeemed us in Jesus Christ, you, you will weave us into your story. In your name, we pray.